All right, everybody, I think that's, that's all of us. It's time for us to begin this evening. Glad you're here. We are in Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> Daniel 8, and we're going to begin in verse 15. All right, so because the, the way the chapter works, it's kind of split down the middle where the first half of the chapter you get the vision that Daniel experiences and the second half you get the interpretation of the vision. So it kind of, it works out for our benefit that we ended last week right there before we got to the interpretation part. So um, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time going back to where we left off, but I'll give you just a quick overview of the vision and then the particulars we're going we're gonna to get anyway because they're going to be mentioned again as you go to the back half of the chapter. When they say, and then you saw this, and it means that. So we don't have to go too deep into the particulars. But it's basically this. You have uh, what starts out with, well, with one animal to start with. And we're going to pretend this is a, a, a ram. Okay, it looks more like a cow, but that's all right. So you have a ram with two horns. One horn is, you know, let's say average size, and one horn is larger than the other. And Daniel sees this animal over in the west. And he sees this animal going into the north and going into the uh, east and going into the south and attacking and being dominant and no one being able to subdue him. Until in this corner comes this animal, another ram, this one having not two horns but one horn, and it says between its eyes or in its head, kind of like a unicorn. And a showdown ensues, a face-off. This one is in the um, west. I said west. I meant east. He's in the east. This one is in the west, and they come to blows. They attack, and this one, as you can guess, destroys this one, subdues it, and takes over. And he becomes, this animal becomes the dominant power. And then it has this great big horn with which it uses to subdue everything and conquer everything. And as was said about this, it said about this, no one could dare defeat it, no one could ever stop it. It's just the bee's knees. It's the greatest thing ever. Until its horn breaks. Now, what's curious about it is... You had, in, with this animal, these two horns, one bigger than the other, two horns with which to do all this fighting. And it specifically says that when this ram attacks this ram, it breaks this one's horns. Symbolic, we don't need the interpretation for this one. We don't need the angel to tell us what this one is. We've already learned a lot of apocalyptic uh, writing. Horns symbolize power and symbolize authority and dominance and control. Well, when you break his horns, you're breaking its, its power. So, okay, I get that. But over here, this animal has now taken over, but its horn breaks without any other animal coming in to subdue it. No animal comes in, as happened with this one. No other animal, you know, like say further from the west or whatever, comes in and breaks its horn. It just breaks. And you're left to wonder when you first hear the vision, how come? Why did this animal suddenly lose its power, if that's what its horn means? Why did it, at its peak and its very fast rise to power, why did it so suddenly lose all of its power. So you're left with that question to be answered in the interpretation. Second to that is its horn, as it breaks, it breaks into four parts, one of which grows and subdues uh, and uh, affects negatively, we'll say, the people of God. And there's some particulars that are mentioned there about how some of the people of God turned traitor and supported this horn that subdued them and um, worked against the, uh, the worship of God. We're going to get to that as we get to the interpretation. But that's basically what Daniel saw. He saw that, and then he heard this, um, these people begging and wondering and asking, how long is this going to go on? The answer was given 350 years or something like that. Uh, but again, questions. Questions without answers is all you get. You get the picture. You get the visuals. It's very remarkable. Obviously, this doesn't do it justice. Imagine being Daniel and seeing it. But that's where we left off. He's experienced this vision that has all these things, and Daniel is, at this point, I mean, he's 
60 something. So he's he's played this game before. He's already gone through this with Nebuchadnezzar twice. So he knows the drill. He knows the rules. He knows probably he can guess what some of these things represent. He just doesn't have names to go with faces. And that's what he's about to get. All right. So he's, he's as we pick up with verse 15, um, he's contemplating what he's just experienced. Look at Daniel 8, 15. It came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me someone with the appearance of a man. Well, listen, if you got to say it looked like a man, you know two things. You know it looked like a man, but you know it wasn't a man. Because if it was a man, he would have just said, I saw a man. So he's seeing what? Who wants to take a wild guess? It's not that wild. And he sees an angel. Yes, exactly. He sees an angel. And I heard, verse 16, a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, that's where he was when this whole vision started, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. All right, so... Now we have a name to go with the angel that Daniel sees. And we, having already read ahead, we've already read the back of the book. We've read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. So we know who Gabriel is. Well, if I say Gabriel, who do you think of? What, what, what do you think of? Okay. Yeah, but I mean, what's the, what is the story, for lack of a better word, you associate with Gabriel? Yeah, Mary and Jesus and the birth, you know, the, the, the uh, incarnation of Christ. Exactly. So here's Gabriel. Long before that... Here it is. And so having already read my New Testament, I now have confirmation this is an angel. It is, it is an angel in particular, the angel Gabriel. And so here's this voice that as Daniel is sitting there and he's staring at this, which is what you're all doing, just kind of scratching his head, trying to figure out, is that a ram? It looks like a cow or maybe a lion. He's trying to figure all of it out. He can't quite make heads or tails of it. And he's thinking to himself, all right, I've been here before. He's doing this. Back when Nebuchadnezzar had his thing, I asked God and God gave me the vision. And then later on, he had the whole big tree vision. And I asked God and he gave me the vision. And I, I just, he's doing this. And finally, God says, Gabriel, go tell him what the vision means. That's basically what happens in verse 16. I heard this voice that said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. It's getting sad. He doesn't understand, so go tell him. Verse 17. So he came near, Gabriel did, where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. Why? I thought he looked like a man. Well, he looked like a man. Well, if you see an angel, as the Bible, whenever the Bible goes out of its way to describe angels, and they take various forms, or they're just their various races uh, of uh, angelic beings. But whenever you see them, subtle they are not. You know, uh, you know, mild-mannered they are not. To see an angel, even the ones that just look like men in white robes, they radiate with a heavenly aura. That frightens people. And that's what he's seeing. He's seeing the, the most mildest version. He's not seeing the you know 50 eyes and the wings all over the place and the wheels within wheels that Ezekiel has to see. He just sees a guy, but as he gets close, the magnitude of his angelic presence is too much for him. Verse 17, as he came near where I stood, I was afraid, and I fell on my face, not to worship him, as happens sometimes, again, probably because you're so overcome, you're so, you know, just blown away by the spectacle. That's your natural impulse. But, no, he just falls on his face out of fear, it says. And he said to me, Gabriel does, Understand, O son of man. Or, in other words, understand the vision. For at the time of the end shall be the vision. That's my Bible. What does your Bible say there at the end of verse 17? That the vision is for the time of the end. Uh, yes, good. Uh, hopefully nobody's Bible says, um, does your say the end? All right. But let's not put such a note of finality to that. This is not a vision that he's seeing he's about to get interpretation of. 
This is not a vision of the end, the end. He's not seeing a vision of the end of time. And we'll be able to put dates and names and figures on the things to, to understand that he's not seeing that. So let's not jump too much of the gun here. What he's being told is, I'm going to tell you the vision of something that's going to come to pass and which God is going to put a stop to. All right, That's important because even if he doesn't know exactly what's going on, he's got enough of a picture and he has enough familiarity with the way these visions work to have understood from it some bad things are about to happen. I say about to, within the span of several hundred years, some bad things are going to happen. So it's a comfort, it's a relief to say, let me tell you what it means, and then it's not going to last forever. It's, it's going to concern the end of a thing. All right, verse 18. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright. Now you can read this in a couple of different ways. Does this verse mean that Daniel fell asleep in the vision... And the angel wakes him up in the vision. Or does it mean that Daniel had the vision, woke up, asked God for the meaning, God sent the angel, he fell on his face, and fell asleep? I don't, it's, it's one or the other, unless there's a third you know, understanding of that, I, I can't fathom. But I'll remind you that he's very old. Well, not very old. He's in his 60s. No offense to anybody. Uh, he's old. He's old. All right, all right. I mean, like that. I mean... He is, he's not the spry, young teenager he was when he first got the visions and the interpretations. And we've already established, I think it was in the previous chapter, the, the physical toll that these visions take on a person. It wears you out and completely drains you. So, no, 60 is not old. Okay, I understand. I'm closer to it than I was before when I would have first said that. Um, nevertheless, when you are that age, now plus compounding that with the magnitude of seeing a vision, it's going to drain. So maybe it was that. Maybe he falls on his face and he just, you know, just completely collapses. Either way, either way, he's out and the angel has to touch him and set him upright. Verse 19. And the angel said, Behold, I will make you to know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. So that's the end under consideration here. There, you saw a vision of some hard times that are coming. Now let me tell you what that vision means and how it's going to end. So, for the time appointed, the end shall be. In other words, who's in control? Who's ultimately the decider? Whose timetable are we all operating on? It's God's. It's not this guy's timetable because he rose and then he fell. It's not this guy's timetable because he rose and then he was broken. It's not going to be this guy's timetable who's going to do all kinds of damage to God's people. God is the one who's in control. God is the one who's playing chess here. All these people are playing as checkers. So he's reminding him of that. I'm going to set you straight on what's going on here so that you can know the times that are appointed. Well, who does the appointing? God does. Now, let's get some interpretation. Verse 20. The ram over here, first one, which you saw having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Is that what your Bible says? Yes. Everybody's Bible says that? All right. Media and Persia. Now, it doesn't specifically, unless I forget, uh, we'll read in a second, but I don't think it does specifically identify Persia as the bigger horn. But we know Cyrus was the king of the Persians, and Cyrus became the emperor and the ruler over the Medo-Persian Empire. And even though it's Medo-Persian, Cyrus was the Persian who ruled over that empire. So bigger horn grew bigger. All right. Anyway, media, media and Persian. Um, it's, it's a minor thing for us because, again, here, here's our map. You know, it's incomplete and not exactly the scale and so forth. Medo-Persia is going to be about here or so, you know, spreading over here as it grows. Um, we can identify it on the map. We can mark it. We can say, you know, here's Persia and Media and so forth. 
we can do all that in Syria is up here and Babylon was here. We can identify all these places, but imagine if you were looking at a map, um, a globe. Let's say you were looking at a globe in 1960, all right? If you, from where America is, if you're spinning around, you're going to see this giant big country. And it's going to have four letters. What are those four letters? USSR. Now, imagine telling someone, showing someone a globe from 2021, and they're like, what is, what is this country? What is this country? What is this country? Where is the USSR? Imagine showing a Russian that in 1960, right? You, you can't fully appreciate what he's being told here because when he's being told this, who is the current king and who is the current empire? The empire is Babylon. The king is Belshazzar. Cyrus, this guy, the king of uh, uh, Persia, hasn't even been born yet. He's not even, he's not even, you know, he's not even around yet. Certainly he's not conquering and coming into power. And yet he is being, not him personally, but his kingdom is being identified as this source of this vision. And Daniel is seeing that vision. Daniel is writing that vision. Daniel is going to tell that vision. And then later when they get the interpretation, when the rest of the people get the interpretation of the vision, they're going to be able to see and understand that God knew something before Anybody could have ever predicted it. It would be like someone predicting in 150 years, um, Kazakhstan becoming this dominant empire over all of Europe. Raise your hand if you can find Kazakhstan on the map. Okay? My point exactly. You tell me that this great and mighty powerful conqueror are the kings of Media and Persia, and Daniel's like, hold on, let me get my map. Because I don't even remember where Media and Persia are. Babylon's the emperor right now. Babylon's the empire right now. You see how remarkable that is? And so when people say, how can you know the Bible is true? How can you have confirmation the Bible is true? I would remind you that the Bible talks about Cyrus. And Isaiah mentions Cyrus by name. Isaiah mentions him by name 150 years before the cat is ever born. Before he, the cat was even in the cradle, Cyrus was mentioned by name. And in fact, in fact... The whole reason that Cyrus even warmed up to the Jews to send them home was because someone said, Hey, have you read Isaiah? You're in here, my guy. And he read that and he was like, Well, holy crow, that's my name right there. Your God must know something that my God doesn't. Your people must be special. And a snowball starts to roll and ends up with them going home. You can't do that if it was, as the critics of the Bible say, written after the fact. It doesn't work that way. You show me, you show me my name in a book that was written... A hundred years ago. Show me my name, and I don't just, Matthew's a common name, but I mean, show me my name and my deeds that I will do specific to me from a book a hundred years ago. I'm not going to think, oh, well, you wrote that book 50 years from now. That's what's stupid. You see what I'm saying? But that's what the critic of the Bible wants me to believe. Well, they wrote that after Cyrus sent them home. Then why did Cyrus send them home? Anywho, media in person. Verse 21. And that other goat is whom? What does it say? King of Greece. The king of Greece! Greece! I mean, come on! We're all the way over here. Alexander, I know he's not named, but he's the king of Greece under consideration. And there will be even more references. It's going to get even more undisputable in a little bit when we start talking about the four broken horns and stuff, parts of the horn. But just the fact that that just the fact that Gabriel, in the time of Belshazzar, would name drop the king of Grecia, as the King James calls her, or the king of Greece, long before Greece was a twinkle in anybody's apple, okay? The fact that he would name that kingdom is astounding. 
And you cannot say, like, I, I, it's not true, but I can see why someone could, without doing the research, believe that they mentioned Cyrus and they mentioned the deeds of Cyrus after the fact. Because those things all happen relatively quickly, okay? But the king of Grecia, Alexander, rose to power long after they were back home. Long after these people had the book of Daniel and had read and had known. There was nobody back then saying, well, that king of Grecia, you know, that's already happened. No, they were wondering, when is this king of Grecia going to do his thing? And then suddenly, boom, Alexander starts rising to power. They were already here. They already had it. They already read it. What I'm saying to you is, what the Bible critic would try to do is muddy all of that, and they'll try to say, well, somebody wrote that after Alexander came to power to make it look like it was a prophecy. Except these people already had Daniel. It had already been written by somebody. And that somebody said, y'all watch out because Alexander's coming. The king of Greece is coming. And he's this goat right here. And boy, is he the goat. Because he conquered everything that you could ever get your eyes on. Verse, verse 22. Now, that being broken. Remember, he had a horn. It was broken. Did I miss a... No. Oh, yeah, I did. Back to verse 21. The rough goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is that first king. All right, that's a, a segue too because there's going to be other kings that come from Alexander in a sense. So he's this one big dominant king. Verse 22. Now that horn of his being broken, whereas four stood up for it, or four stood up in its place. Where there was one horn, now there are four horns. Where there was one unified source of power, there is now four sources of power. Now listen, I don't need Alexander's name written down in Chaldean, in the book of Daniel, to know this is Alexander. Because if you ask anybody with even like a fifth grade, I would hope, I don't know what they teach in school anymore. I don't, I don't know. Let's, 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 let's say college. It's probably going to be college now. But just a, a cursory understanding of world history of that era. And you ask them, who was that king of Greece that after he died, his four generals took over? I mean, a C student, a D student could probably tell you who it is. Please don't prove me wrong. Who was the king of Greece that had four generals? I've already said his name 50 times. Who was it? Yeah, see, y'all know, right? I'm sure the people watching at home know. Anybody could know that. So I know this is Alexander you're telling me about. He's a king in Greece who is a central unified figure of power, and then his horn breaks. Nobody breaks it. It just breaks. Why? Why? In history, does Alexander suddenly stop being Alexander? Yeah, he stopped being Alexander because he died. And when you die, you tend to lose your power. That's usually how that works. Rarely do kings hold on to power when they're dead. Anyway, so he dies, and his four come to power. Cassander, who took over Macedonia and Greece, the old Alexander stomping grounds. Uh, Lysicomus took over um, Asia Minor. Um, Seleucus we'll get to. And Ptolemy took over Egypt. So you have four. Uh, Cassander, Lysicomus, Ptolemy took over these major parts. And then here's this part over here that Alexander conquered. And when he died, it was replaced by one of his generals, who is going to be the general Antiochus. Oh, actually, Seleucius, pardon me, Seleucius takes over. And he establishes the Seleucian, or the Seleucid dynasty, the Seleucid kingdom. He would call it the Seleucian Empire, but he was very proud like that. All right, so anyway, verse 22. The horn is broken, four stand up in its place, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, four kingdoms will rise out of Greece, out of this one, four will come but not in his power. In other words, it's not like I'm this big dominant emperor and I'm going to hand off power and divide it up. 
It's not like it's going to be ripped away from me. It's I'm going to die. There's going to be a vacuum and it's going to be filled by these four. 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences, that's the way the King James puts it, shall stand up. So you've got the divisions now, and you've got you know a ruler over here, and you've got a ruler here, and you have a ruler here, and you have a ruler here. And this is relevant to our interest because this is Judea, this is our promised land, this is where the people who are currently in exile are going to go back to after 70 years. And so when Cyrus lets them go back, I would guess maybe he is born by now. But he's like a toddler, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, so they go back here, and they're going to come back into, eventually, the reign of one of these parts of Alexander's kingdom. The Seleucid kingdom is going to take them over. And from that is going to come this ruler, and his name is going to be Antiochus. All right? We'll get to him in a second. But here's how he's described. Verse 23. Um, he's a king of fierce countenance. He's a man of boldness, no shame uh, in his wicked game. He understands, the King James says, dark sentences. What is he saying? He knows riddles. Um, that's a literal translation, but it doesn't really do it justice. He's a guy who is always thinking of evil things. He's trying to come up with, what, what, how can I top my evil self today? And it's a riddle. It's a puzzle. He's trying to figure it out. What can I do that's more evil today? It's the most cartoon, cliche kind of villain. And if you study Antiochus Epiphanes, that is him to a T. He was... He was so cartoonishly villainly, if he had a mustache, he twirled it. That's how villainy he was, okay? So he was thinking of different ways to do it. And we've already been given glimpses of it earlier in this text. Somebody read verse 11 again of this, of this chapter. Read verse 11. This is back in the middle of just the vision part of it. It became great. Antiochus became great, sorry. Even as great as the prince of hosts. Mm -hmm. The regular burnt offerings and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of the sanctuary was overthrown. All right. So we're, what we're getting is we're getting names and faces onto those vague descriptions of animals and things like that in the vision. But he just read to you, Frank did from the vision, and when he told you us, who we now identify as Antiochus, that's the, the guy in question, he, among other things, takes away the ability of the people to offer sacrifices. And sure enough, in history, when Antiochus ruled over Judea, among other places, Temple worship was stopped. It was banned for three years, which, by the way, just so happens to be the length of time in that vision that we read last week when they asked, how long is this going to last? And it was so many days, remember, and I forgot how to divide and things like that. And it's, it's still a figurative number, but it just so happens to basically work out to the literal amount of time that Antiochus said, you're not allowed to worship your God. I mean, this guy was spitefully evil. He wasn't like, well, I need to make sure I set myself up, and so you got to dominate be dominant and worship me. It was just like, do you like that God? Well, then I don't want you to worship him. Just, uh, just a spiteful, you know, sassy person. If you're still there, read verse 12, Frank. <clears throat> and a host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. There are going to be people of this subdued people. <clears throat> there are going to be people of Judea who are going to join with him and aid him. And sure enough, in history, you read about not just... Um, not just your average uh, go-along-to-get-along type. Not, not your, your godly, you know, submit-to-authorities, even if they're wicked type. But your aid-and-abet-the-enemy type. There are always people like that when there's a conquest and there's a, a, a ruler who is, you know, oppressive. Somebody always goes above and beyond because they think they can get something for it. And they traitor, turn traitor. 
to their people. And there was a high priest. I don't know if I wrote it down. Oh, yeah. Uh, Josephus, the historian, records that under Antiochus's reign, um, yeah, temple worship stopped for three years. And in that time, the Levite, Jason, uh, bribed Antiochus into being made the high priest over the legit guy, Onias, who was, you know, they keep that thing by lineage. And so he bribed to get himself into that position. So they worked together to disrupt temple worship. And he worked with the enemy so he could get a position of high authority over the people. So exactly as the vision predicts. 8.24. And his, that's Antiochus, power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy, the King James says, wonderfully. When you watch what he does, you'll be in awe and shock and horror. Is a better way to put that. And he shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. So a lot of descriptive terms here. He's a terrible ruler, but great in power over God's people. But it specifically says, not by his own design. In other words, if you ask him, he'll tell you, look at all I've accomplished. Look at my conquest. When we get to the next chapter, um, Belshazzar is going to be told by David about Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, and how everything that he did, God gave him. Everything that he had, God gave him. Well, that's you don't think of it that way when you're the emperor. You think, look at what I've done. Look at all the flags that I've planted. But from a divine standpoint, everything you have is given to you. And so, therefore, it can be taken away as we read over and over. That's the theme of this book. God gives and God takes kingdoms according to his will. So even with Antiochus, as much evil as he does, as much as he prospers in his evil devices, it's not by his own power implied. It is by God's giving that he does this. God established it. God allows it as wicked and as evil, to the point of him not allowing the people to worship God, God allowed that to happen. But doesn't God want to be worshipped? Yes. But God has perspective. God sees a bigger picture. God has a plan. And what these people suffering don't understand is this plan is ultimately going to culminate in the salvation of the world through Christ. And it's just going to work out in just a certain kind of time frame, in just a certain kind of way, with certain kinds of people doing certain kinds of things, many of which are wicked. It's just, it blows my mind when people say, I can't believe God would use wicked people to do his, his plan. Well, who else is he going to use? Jesus hasn't come yet. We're all sinners, right? I mean, he's going to use people. People are going to do wicked things. He used David. Who sinned? He used Abraham. Who sinned? Over and over. So, of course, every now and then he's going to get the rottenest apple in the bushel, but he's still going to use it for his ultimate good. Verse 24. Oh, sorry. Uh, did we read that one? Yeah. 25. 25. And through his policy, that's a very mild-mannered way of putting it, through his uh, works, also he shall cause craft to prosper, the King James says. Craftiness or deceit. He's a guy who works with just... He sets a vibe that just creates an environment of, of you know, evil doings. Uh, it'll prosper in his hand. That's, in other words, that's his legacy. What's, what are you leaving behind? Is it a good economy? Is it a strong military? No, it's just a bunch of people who love doing wicked things. He shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of, uh, prince of princes, and he shall be broken without hand. Um... The phrase, in my Bible again, it says, um, by peace shall destroy many. It's right there in the middle of the verse. Do you, your Bible have a different translation? Mm -hmm. What? Without warning, it shall destroy many. It just says without warning? Mm 
Well, Anybody else have a different one? He will destroy many while they are at ease. Yes, yeah, that's, I like that one even better. In other words, your typical guy, raise up an army, go fight this other guy. And they see you coming 10 miles away. You know, they're blowing bugles, they've got drummers, they've got flags. You know when the army's coming. But this guy, he'll have you over for dinner, and he'll poison your drink. He'll have you over for dinner, and then when you get up to say thank you and you bow, he'll stick a knife in your gut. You know, that's this guy. He will use peace. He will use kindness. He will use the the uh, veneer of friendship to do his dirty work. He will rise to power and maintain power through duplicitous tactics. Um, he will stand up against the prince of princes. He will he will oppose God, and he shall be broken without hand. In other words, as was the case with Alexander, who you cannot help but say lost his kingdom. He just, he just ended. His kingdom died because he died. This guy was destroyed. And you can pinpoint it. Boom, this guy took out that guy. Well, who took out this guy? Death. Who took out this guy? God. Now you've got this guy, this horn, who becomes a, the kingdom that leads to the king Antiochus, the ruler Antiochus, Epiphanes, over the people. He's going to be taken down. But who's going to get the credit for taking him down? God. Nobody's going to be able to say, with this hand, I stopped him. He will be credited to God. Why? Because it will happen in a divine way. It will happen by, I mean, in history, the, the Maccabean, the Judah-Maccabean revolt. But it's that's a long process and a very fascinating history. In the end, though, the credit will go to God for Antiochus' fault. 26. And the vision of the... Wait, hang on. Pause. Did I skip something? Yeah, I did. One more, one more thing. Sorry. I, let, I missed out the part. In verse 25, um, he'll magnify himself in his heart. I want to make reference to that. Um, he's very prideful. His name was Antiochus. He gave himself the moniker Epiphanes. Don't just call me Antiochus, call me Epiphanes. It would be like if I was Matthew and I said, don't just call me Matthew Martin. Call me Matthew Manifest God in the Flesh Martin. I'll put it on my card. right? Don't just call me Matthew Martin. Call me Matthew God Stands Among Us Martin. That's this guy. Epiphanes means God has manifested himself to the people. So when you look at me, he says, I want you to see God standing in your midst. So the people, while they were under his thumb, this was in the days preceding the or leading up to the Maccabean revolt, as they were sick and tired of you know all the oppression, he would just strut around calling himself Epiphanes this, Epiphanes that, and the people started calling him Epimenes, which if you're saying it fast enough, sounds basically the same thing, but he might not have heard it, but they all started calling him Epimenes, which means crazy guy. So they would call him Antiochus, the man ran. Antiochus Epiphanes. They would say it like that, and he'd walk by saying, It's right I am, and they would all snicker when he walks away because he didn't hear them right. So he's puffed himself up, but they understood God's going to humble him. Now, verse 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning which is told is true. Everything that you've seen is coming to pass. Wherefore shall you shut up the vision, seal it up, you probably might say, for it shall be for many days. In other words, you're all the way back in uh, Belshazzar's reign. We're all the way. I mean, we're hundreds of years away. We're in like five, sixty or something. You're, we're talking about something in the three hundreds and the two hundreds. Um, so it, we got a ways to go. So when he says, "Shut up the vision," what we're going to see when you connect this to the next verse is you can say what you saw in the dream, but the interpretation that stays quiet until obviously the book is written. And distribute them. Again, um, you saw the vision, it's true. Seal it up because it will be for many days yet to come. Verse 27. 
And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. That's just his job. And I was astonished at the vision. I was consistently thinking about it and blown away by it. And my mind just, you know, in, in awe of all mm -hmm. that I considered. But none understood it. You, you can imagine coming to people. What do you think it means there's a horn that has two big horns and one's bigger than the other and then a unicorn comes and gores it? And you just tell all these people and they're like, Sir, this is a Wendy's. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what this means. That's what he was doing basically. Nobody understood the vision. He was allowed to tell the vision, but it wasn't until people had access to... Don't go away, Matt. Just go away. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. He had access to the people. When the people finally had access to his writings, they were able to say, Oh, and now I see what that, what that guy was talking about. Here's the evidence. Here's the point. Here's the references. All right. That's Daniel chapter 8. Any comments or questions before we go to the next chapter? Perspective. From a youth, he was very high with the ruler of the kingdom. Yeah, Daniel was. Uh -huh. and, ta and talking about how perplexed he was and how sick he was and how he didn't understand it. Mm. His whole life, until being an old man, was all about the way the country was run and, and how things went and seeing something like this I can understand where it would where it would bother him mm -hmm. uh, not understanding what was coming but he had spent his life serving the kings and, and doing their biddings and, and trying to make the best of what he had, what he had I guess yeah and I, I can understand why he didn't understand oh yes yeah like I said I mean it's obviously I can't give you a modern day example because it would involve me telling you something of the future in a way that wouldn't make sense, but I, I don't know the future, so I can't give you that. I can give you the USSR and a modern thing, but you still have to go back and try to imagine what would that be like. You know, be like someone showing you a map and Canada doesn't say Canada; it says, you know, I don't know, Iran up there, and you're like, what is going on? What's happened? What will the next map show? You know, you can't fathom it. You can't even break it and process it. And that's what he saw, and then he gets the interpretation, and it's a lot of it bad news because it involved. You're, the people who are now, think of it like this, they're in exile. They left the promised land. They go into exile. And if you read Ezekiel and if you read Daniel, they're going to say, don't worry, you're going to get out of exile. You're going to go back home. It's going to be fine. So they're going to go back home. But according to this prophecy, it's out of the frying pan into the fire. I'm going to leave captivity to go home to be captive. What's changed? Well, nothing except God still has a plan. And you're not going to be fine because of where your home is on earth. You're going to be fine because all this is going to bring about the Messiah who's going to give you perspective and salvation and a reason not to worry about where you live, whether here or there or anywhere. All right. Daniel, go back now. We're going to start a new chapter. We have 15 minutes to go. Daniel chapter 5. Go to Daniel 5, because chronologically, that's the next chapter. We just finished Daniel 8. That is the third year of Belshazzar. So now we go to Daniel 5. And this is what we're going to see is um, the beginning, early part of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Um, roughly 539, 39 B.C. So Daniel has been in Babylon for about 60 years. All right? If you remember Daniel 2 and the Daniel there was a kid. He, was, he would be in the teen class right now. And now he's uh, between 70 and 80 years old, I guess, something like that. Um, so here's where that's your setting. So Daniel doesn't even factor into this yet. Right now it's Belshazzar 
same king as before, here he is again. And he made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. How many people you can fit in one of those dining halls? I, I wrote it down somewhere around here. Um, oh, here it is. Um, archaeologists have unearthed banquet halls of Babylon measuring 400 by 250 feet. I don't know how that compares to like our fellowship hall. Is that bigger? I assume Four it's bigger. Times. Four times bigger? All right, so imagine our fellowship hall, and then imagine three other ones and put them together. I don't do math, Kira. Quit giggling. I don't do math. Very, very big, a thousand people could fit. All right? Anywho, verse 2. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring, so he's already drunk, he's obnoxious, he's embarrassing himself. He drinks the wine, he commands to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem that the king, those vessels which the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. So bring me all of the goblets, bring me all of the saucers, bring me all of the fine things that we stole when we raided Jerusalem and brought them here um, so that we can all just, you know, make merry with them and, you know, make a mockery of them and drink the wine out of them and so forth. Uh, just a quick note, it says in my Bible, maybe it does yours too, that his father is Nebuchadnezzar. It's actually his grandfather um, but father, I don't even know if there was a grandfather as a term back then. It's just your, his ancestor. Nebuchadnezzar is um, the ruler. He's actually the emperor. And then he is he is gone away. He's doing some conquesting as they as they did. And he's left his son Belshazzar to rule in his stead. So he's like a regent. He's like a you know a guy in charge. He wears the title. He wears the crown. He wears all the you know uh, arrogance. But technically. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's son is still in power. His grandson's on the throne right now. Verse 3. So let's bring all this, he says as he's drunk. Bring all this stuff so we can, we can have fun with it. Verse 3. So they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines, they all drank in them. So let's just have a big party. Let's take these things that if you've read your Old Testament, God said are sacred and consecrated and holy and not to be defiled. I mean, the very idea of doing something like this back then as an Israelite would have been death by fire from heaven. Just ask Nadab and Abihu when they just walked through the wrong door with the wrong fire on a stick, what happened to them? So this is a complete mockery. Of God. Now, I would remind you, though, that yes, he's making a mockery of God, but he's doing so with the things that God allowed him to take, okay? So if you don't understand what's going on here, you might think, so is God okay with this? No, he's not. God does not condone evil. God will use evil. He will allow evil to be done because people have free will, and then he will use the evil that is done to work out his ultimate good will. So here is the... the um, We'll call him the king, Belshazzar. And he is taking these things that God allowed him to have, and he's doing evil with them. It, it's not going to stand. Verse 4. They all drink wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and stone. Let's take these things that the creator of these things uh, conditioned and made as sacred, and let's bring them all down to a pagan level and worship them. Verse 5. Worship our gods with them. Verse 5. And in that same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw a part of the, the part of the hand that wrote. So I don't know if you've ever like looked at pictures or looked at like YouTube videos. You know, they're always the quality is always so cheap and silly. But oftentimes it looks like some dude's hand just you know. Hey, me. 
just you know rioting. But it wouldn't have been like, look at that, look at that. I'm, why do we even have? Why do they even have this letter? So it, it wasn't a dude's hand. It wasn't like thing from Adam's family. Because what does your Bible say? It was, huh? Parts of a hand. Yeah, it was fingers of a hand. So not even the palm part. Just imagine some digits grabbing and writing. Just see floating fingers. It makes it even creepier to me. That's just that's just, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I have some kind of a thing. I need to see my therapist. So he just sees fingers from a man's hand riding over by the candlestick upon the wall of the king's palace. And the king looks over and he sees fingers writing on the wall. Verse 6. And the king's countenance, who, you know, his expression, his mood, where nine seconds ago he is just having the party of his life. He's completely plastered. He's just making mockery of God's things. And he looks over and he sees this and a switch goes off. His countenance has changed. His thoughts trouble him. The, the King James says the joints of his loins were loosened. That doesn't mean he pooped his pants. That means his hips started to get weak so he couldn't support his weight. And as the next clause says, his knees knocked against each other. Thus the phrase, his knees were knocking, was born. So he was so scared, he was so freaked out that his body was actually convulsing and shaking. If you've ever been that scared, imagine that. <clears throat> Verse 7. And the king cries aloud. Now, how many people are at this banquet? What did we read a few verses ago? Thousand. Did it say thousands or thousand? I don't remember. Okay, everybody's. It's, it's not like uh, Kim Jong Un or whatever, where they all have to wait and eat when he eats, you know, and make sure you look like you're happy mm -hmm. eating the food, or he'll cut your head off. It's not like that. They're all just partying. They're all having a good time. There's wine all over the place. Mm -hmm. Nobody is necessarily, or at least not everybody, is paying attention to the king or to ghost digits marking on the hand. So all of a sudden, you just hear the king screaming, verse 7, Bring me the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. Now that's going to draw everyone's attention. And I don't know if the hands are still, the hand, the fingers are still there or not. But at some point, the word's going to start spreading about what happened. But he screams, Bring me the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and said to the wise men after they came, Whoever shall read this writing, because they put something on the wall, and show me the interpretation thereof, shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. You will have, um, you will have, well, let's just back up. He calls the people. Now, we've seen this play before. Chapter 2, chapter 4, I see a thing I don't understand, call in my wise men. So far, it's oh, they're 0 for 2, all right? I don't, I don't have good odds on them being able to do anything. But he calls in the astrologers, he calls in the Chaldeans, he calls in the soothsayers. And he says... Can you read this writing, which, you know, it, I'm not even going to pretend. It's, I'm just going to put scribbles on the board, because that's what it would look like to them, all right? Because any language you, you don't know how to read looks like funny scribbles and, and lines and stuff. So here's this thing, and it, it's not Chaldean, it's not Hebrew, it's not any kind of language that he knows as a king. I mean, he ain't taught farming, okay? As a king, you're taught languages, and you're taught history, and you're taught culture, that you can negotiate and deal with kingdoms and kings around you. So he's looking at these letters and things, and he has no idea what he's reading. They, 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 they comport to no language or culture or, or region or race that he knows of. So all he can do is say, i got to bring in my wise men. <clears throat> but this is the longest of shots, because if he doesn't know, unless he was just asleep in language class, which may be the case if he was a prince one day, and the odds are they're not going to know either. This is some language that nobody knows. It's not like it's a language he knows exists, but he doesn't know the meaning. It's just random words and markings. But 
What, what else can he do? As far as he knows, that thing can be predicting the day he's going to die. And he wants to know it as soon as possible. So it's, it's just funny how it works out. So much like his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's the way history God uses. You know, it worked, so let's do it again. You know, instead of a dream, let's just start scribbling on the wall. Um, so the third ruler in the kingdom, Babylon, had two rulers in its history. And he's basically saying, I'll make you, I'll make you a ruler. Uh, in Babylon, if you can interpret this. Now, granted, he's a little drunk. I don't know if he has that authority. He's a little desperate, so he's willing to offer anything. I think it's the takeaway. Verse 8. So then here they come. Here comes his crack squad. All the king's wise men. But, surprise, they could not read the writing, nor could they make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Once again, we must ask, what do I even pay you for? Why are you still on salary? Because this now makes three times... When you've been called to do your one job, and they can't do it. Verse 9. So was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were, the King James says, a stonied, bewildered, at a loss. They're just looking around saying, well, someone's about to die. It's not going to be me. They don't know what's going to happen, but they don't know what to do. What can you do? Verse 10. It's, I mean, it's not even like a dream. I can tell you the dream, and you can make something up. Good luck, you know. That looks like a cue. I don't know. You know, what can he do? Verse 10. So the queen, this is not his wife. This is not even his mother. His mother, according to history, had already died. This would be his grandmother, the wife of the late Nebuchadnezzar. The queen, by reason of the words of the king, and just seeing his freak it out in this, and all of his lords came into the banquet house. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Everyone says that when they approach him, it's the thing. Let not your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance be changed. Don't be so worried. Everything's going to be okay. Well, you can't say that unless you're about to offer a solution. Verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, um, he had light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods and that was, that was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians. He made Daniel, we're talking about, master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Just so happened to be the same bunch of yahoos who came in and couldn't do nothing. But Daniel was not among them. And so here comes his grandmother to say, it's going to be okay. Don't you know that you have a person in your kingdom who this has already happened to? It happened to your grandfather. He had a vision twice over. He couldn't interpret. And we called him in. And he showed himself to have, look at the description she gives him, um, the spirit of the holy gods, that's a pagan describing it in a pagan way, um, had light and understanding, and there's, it's, it's a whole 30-minute thing, we won't do it, about the way the ancient people viewed wisdom and knowledge and special understanding. There are, there are writings and, and you know, teachings that show that they thought the more you knew, you had like this inner light that would get filled up and brighter to the point where the really, really smart people almost glowed in the dark. They had the crazy, craziest ideas about the association, association between light and knowledge. Not in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense. Whether it evolved into a metaphor by this point, I don't know. But that's what she's saying. Light, understanding, wisdom. Those are all synonymous terms to her. Like the wisdom of our gods was found in him. Although if she remembered back then, we already went over this, Nebuchadnezzar said, it's not the wisdom of the gods, I see the wisdom of your God. But time has passed and now we forget. Verse 12. For as much this one is an excellent spirit, 
and knowledge and understanding, uh, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in that same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, summoned, and he will show the interpretation. Look at the description she gives him in verse 12. An excellent spirit. That's the kind of thing you would say about one of those, you know, people who work for the king who say they can commune with the dead. And that's, she's a pagan trying to understand how is he able to do this. Well, he must be a spirit who can commune with the dead. Second, he says, she says, he possesses great knowledge and understanding. So like your typical wise man or soothsayer, he can interpret, he can read it, he can tell you what it means, figure it out for you. He can interpret dreams. She remembers that from her husband long ago. Fourth, um, he can show hard sentences and dissolve doubts. He can solve riddles and crack complicated conundrums, in other words, things like that. So he, he is your guy. In other words, you just, you just brought in a specialist, a specialist, a specialist, a specialist, and there's a guy you haven't brought in who can like do all of their jobs in one. So just imagine the cost saving, if nothing else. All right, so he's got the resume, verse 13. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said, Daniel, curious, he doesn't call him Belteshazzar, he calls him by his real name. Are you that Daniel, whom the children of the who are the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of the King James's jewelry, not what you not the dangly jewelry, 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 the land of the Jews. He brought you out of Judea. So are you that Daniel? This 60-year-old man, whatever, 70, almost 80 before me, are you the same kid who aided my grandfather not long after we brought you out of Judea? Verse 14. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. My mama told me, or grandma told me so. Are you that guy? Do you really have this knowledge or was she just uh, mistaken? 15. And now the wise men, astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the king. And Daniel's thinking, well, here we go again. I've been here before. 16. And I have heard of thee, the king says, that you can make interpretations, you can dissolve doubts, and you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof. And if you can do that, you will be clothed with scarlet, you will have a chain of gold around your neck, and you will be the third ruler in the kingdom. I will give you scarlet, a life of ease. I will give you gold, a life of wealth. I will make you the third ruler, a life of power. That's the trifecta of money can't buy me love, but it can buy a lot of happiness. That's, that's, that's the offering. But Daniel doesn't really care about all that. And you'll find out why next week. Verse 17. We'll pick it up there. Daniel 5, 17. 